When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. Hope you guys are all doing well and are ready for another story because I have a good one for you guys today. But as you guys are listening to this, it is the beginning of February. I believe it's going to be like the 2nd of February, my dad's birthday, Groundhog's Day. Um, Yeah, we're in the midst of a new month. A new month is here and I am just... You know, every month that's passed, I've just been reminded that it's going to be cold for a little while longer here in the city. And I am becoming increasingly demotivated. Like I'm just all in favor of being chill, of being slow and relaxed, not trying to go anywhere until like, you know, end of March is when I'm actually going to like be mobile. I feel like I'm all in favor of the chill plans and the chill, like getting my work done. So I can like put on very relaxing shows and one show that's actually brought me a lot of joy recently and I don't know if this is just a me thing or something maybe like a guilty pleasure like maybe I should edit my dating apps to say like my guilty pleasure is this watching this specific show that came out so long ago I don't even know if they're still doing it but I actually rediscovered it just a few days ago and I've just been putting it on. I've been racing to finish my work so I could put this on every single day this week so far. And it's, um, what's it called? It's called Antique Roadshow. I don't want to mess it up. Antique, Antiques Roadshow, Antique Roadshow. I'm not really sure. It's on PBS. Um, and I remember my grandma or someone in my life, like either my grandma or like an aunt or someone that when I went, like when my parents were working and I had to go stay somewhere, like I'd watch this show growing up and I always thought it was so boring. Like, oh, these people are coming in with their old, ugly things and these really smart people from all over the place are telling them, oh, well, it might be worth this much money. My expert opinion, like it's worth this much money. But I think I watched it at a time when money didn't really make sense to me. Like, you know, it was when I just didn't have a concept for like how much things are and should be. And because of that, like I thought $20 was a lot of money, which it still is, a, you know, it's a decent sum. But it was back when like $20 was the equivalent of like $2,000 in my mind. And I think when I heard all these, like, you know, crazy prices for like a, an ancient sword or like a, a mural or um, not a mural, but like a painting, oil painting, or like a Turkish rug, like whenever something got over the thousands mark, I didn't really have a concept for how much that was. Like, I didn't really get it. I didn't appreciate antiques, that's for sure. So now that I've rediscovered this show, I'm hooked on it. I love that they tell the history of the pieces. They talk about like, oh, this this uh, Turkish rug, like the person that's bringing it in tells a personal story of, oh, like this rug was given to my great aunt by this person. And like, 
we've treasured it or like we haven't like it it was either like burned in a fire or like th- they explain the reasons for like the wear and tear and it's all very personal and then the appraiser the person the expert looks at the piece and it's like oh well did you know and tells this person that has had this in their homes for many years or found it as a, at a rummage sale or in like a junk pile tells them like oh well did you know this thing is actually like has so much history. The artist only made three of these and this is why it's so valuable. I don't know. I could just be a total nerd and I actually don't even own anything of like that much value. Like I'm not a collector in that way, but like, I don't think I'll ever be, but maybe I will. Maybe I'll go to some rubbish sales and some, um, some estate sales and things and see what I can find, but it would definitely be purely by accident that I would own something of that, of that, um, quality and age but it's so interesting fascinating to watch like i am hooked on it i'm hooked on phonics i'm hooked on <laughs> antiques roadshow and i'm watching uh I'm, I'm flipping around but right now i'm on uh, season 17 <laughs> if you guys need a starting place i think i'm gonna go backwards but yeah that is what i'm up to that is my guilty pleasure of the moment and it's on pbs i think I'm doing the free trial right now, so eventually I think I have to pay monthly for yet another streaming service. I cannot with this. Like, I cannot. It's like all of my shows, like the shows or the categories that I appreciate are all on different streaming services. I'm like, are you doing this on purpose? Like, is the end goal for me to just have access to every single one? I'm not really sure. But I'm also like the, what do you call it? I'm like the owner of many of these licenses and my friends will use my account, if that makes sense. Um, And my family, not to mention my parents, have access to, I think, my Hulu. And, you know, I just I'm like, at this point, sharing is caring. I get good karma points for that. Right. Anyway. So that's the guilty pleasure of the moment, what I've been up to, personal update. And as I'm about to move into a new apartment, which I discussed last week, I'm moving in March. Um, I'm definitely looking for new pieces and a new way of decorating. And I already secured a new rug that I'm really excited about, a new rug piece that I just know you guys are going to be obsessed with. I already have it. Like I'm not moving for another month and a half, but I've already secured the rug. I'm just going to like bring it in here and stack it somewhere until I'm ready to move. But I've already on Canva, they have this glorious feature called Canva whiteboard. And I'm not sure if it's just a premium feature, but if you're trying to like map out your space and just can't really like visualize it, highly recommend using this to like previously I'd use like a PowerPoint doc, but this is like genius. It's just so much easier to see things. You can zoom in, zoom out. It's as big as you want it to be. Like it's infinitely large of a canvas. And what I did was I just screenshotted videos like that I had taken of the unit. And now I'm, I'm bringing in like dragging in furniture pieces to see what's going to match. And you guys are just going to love what I'm going to do with the space. I just know it's going to be fabulous. That being said, the Antique Roadshow is really inspiring me. I feel like I have to go to antique stores in like Brooklyn or I just know Brooklyn has a lot of them, but I need to go and find like little little tchotchkes, little things that bring me joy. But first, I need to get rid of some other things that have previously brought me joy that no longer spark joy that I need to get rid of. It's funny how things, how that happens. Like you've had it for you know, a few years and you're like, I just don't feel the same spark for this thing that I used to have or that I used to have the spark for, if that makes sense. So I'm going to be posting a lot of stuff on my Instagram when I eventually get down that road of 
of uh, you know getting rid of things before I move. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, I have a great story for you guys today. And I'm so excited to share it with you. If you haven't read or discovered this website yet, you need to check it out. It's called allthatsinteresting.com. And I swear, it's just chock full of random stories. And a lot of them I've used for this podcast. So if you haven't heard of it, highly recommend. That's how I find a lot of these stories. All credit to them. But once I find the story, then I like launch into my research phase. I spent all day today reading about this person that we're going to talk about today and this story. And I'm just obsessed to say the least. Like I am just shocked that I never heard this name in the history books and I've decided to do something about it and make a whole episode dedicated to this person. So let's talk about them. Also, side note, before we get into the story, I have a little cold or like a little sinusy thing. So that's why my voice sounds a little bit weird today. If it does, I don't even know if it's just me thinking that I sound funny, but when I get really sick, like I have gigantic tonsils. I don't know if you guys know this and I don't want to get gross. It's, I'm not going to get graphic, but you know, the tonsils in the back of your throat, some people have them, some people don't, some people got them, got them taken out when they were young. But for me, I have genetically large, like larger than anyone else, pretty much like very, very large tonsils. Um, the dentist always gets very scared if they're a new dentist. Um, but yeah, so when I get sick, they just swell even more and it actually alters the way I sound, I think. Like it really does. Um, anyway, so that being said, let's get into today's tale that you guys are just going to be shocked about, like just shocked. Okay. And the story has to do with cryptology and cryptologists. And if you don't know what that means, it's not like cryptocurrency. Like, don't get, I, I feel like when you hear crypto these days, you think, oh, cryptocurrency, oh my God, NFTs, all the stuff, like just like the things that are just like, I, I need to further, I need to read some more books in order to understand these things, but it's such a buzz, buzz topic in New York. But that's not what we're talking about. Like cryptology, the cryptology we're talking about is the study of codes or the art of writing and solving them. And a cryptologist, of course, is the person who studies these codes, looking for patterns to decipher what coded messages and codes in general, what do they mean? Like, what's the greater meaning of all these numbers grouped together, all these letters, like the, the spaces between paragraphs? Like, what do these little nuances, these little things, what do they signal? What are they trying to communicate? It's very fascinating stuff. So today, I'm going to tell you a mind-boggling tale that was kept a secret for many, many years. And it's about one such cryptologist who cracked high-profile codes during World War I, World War II, and Prohibition. But her accomplishments weren't revealed until after her death. And yes, keyword her. This was a woman, an absolute genius. And her story is so interesting. You'll just love it as much as I did when I first discovered it. I know you will. A woman, the first female code cracker, um, or one of the one of the first. She was kind of dubbed as the first, but I'm not really sure. I couldn't find like definitive proof of that. But by all accounts, she was the first female cryptologist. She was referred to as the mother of cryptology. And she helped prevent many crimes and tragedies, though she was rarely given credit for her code cracking. The men in her life or that worked closely with her were often given the credit instead. And so we're going to give her the credit she deserves. Okay. We are going to. Like before 2008, like many people had never heard of her 
because you know, her involvement in so many things was classified. So it was declassified in 2008, which is interesting. Like her, her accomplishments were classified, though her male counterparts were able to, you know, take credit publicly and it wasn't classified. So it's very interesting stuff. Anyway, we're going to get into it in full. This is just top of the episode. So you guys know how remarkable this woman was before we get into the whole spiel. She was also a poet, a scholar of both Shakespeare and Mayan archaeology, a wife and a mother of two. So today, we are devoting an entire episode to this remarkable woman, and her name was Elizabeth Smith Friedman. This is her story. Born on August 26th, 1892... Elizabeth Smith, and something notable, her name, Elizabeth, was spelled with an E in the middle. So it was E-L-I-Z-E-B-E-T-H. And this was intentional. Her mom named her Elizabeth with an E in the middle, so she would never be called Eliza. Because if you know the traditional spelling of Elizabeth, E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H, like could be shortened to Eliza. And for some reason, her mom was not fond of this name. I don't know if it maybe it was like some girl from her childhood, like a childhood bully or something. Like I definitely have association with certain names from my childhood of like, I could never name my child a certain name because that person wronged me or like I just have a bad association with that name. So maybe that was it. I don't really know. She just did not want her daughter being called Eliza. And she wasn't. She was Elizabeth her whole life. And Elizabeth, from the get-go, she had a deep love for words, even at a super young age. She was one of nine children, and she was the youngest of nine. She was energetic. She was impatient, strongly opinionated, had a disdain for stupidity, which is really funny. And she's known to have been not just obsessed with words and literature and poetry, but she was also a hairdresser, seamstress, and fashion consultant to her friends. So this girl, she was multi-talented, multifaceted, even at a young age, like very stylish in all the photos I've seen, very stylish, very smartly dressed. According to the sources I read online, which I'll have, of course, linked in the show notes, Elizabeth enjoyed reading and writing from a young age, and she insisted on attending college as an English literature major against her father's wishes. Like her dad was not keen on the idea. Unclear if it was just going to college in general, because apparently of the nine kids, only two, including Elizabeth, went to college. So I don't know. She she was brought up in a very religious home. And I don't know. The father just did not want her to go to college. But she obviously found a way. (laughs) She did it anyway. She convinced her dad to lend her some money for college. So maybe at first he wasn't keen on the idea. And then he came around once he realized how much she wanted to go. So she packed her bags and she went to college. She actually went, I believe, to two colleges. She briefly attended Wooster College in Ohio, but she ended up graduating from Hillsdale College in Michigan. And there she studied poetry and literature. Upon graduating in 1915, Elizabeth spent a year serving as a teacher and principal, teacher and principal, which is interesting, maybe at the same time or not, I don't know, but it was only a year. So one can assume like at the same time. Um, But she was feeling restless. She craved adventure. So she ventured to Chicago and wanted to find work at a library. And this next part is pretty serendipitous and really my favorite part of the story, even though it's like not the best part. It's just like a 
close to my heart, you know, just like a, one of those things where like you make a decision and it alters the rest of your life. Like those sorts of things get me going. So Elizabeth, she chose this specific library in Chicago to try to get work there. Like she picks this one random library, not random to her, but it was like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, there's a lot of libraries in the world. She chose this one library in Chicago to attempt to get work there. She went to go apply for a job there. You know, she might have chose it because they had in their collection a 1623 original edition of Shakespeare's first folios. She was a big Shakespeare fanatic. And I looked it up. This was actually the first published collection of Shakespeare's plays produced seven years after his death. So it was a novelty, this 1623 edition, original edition of Shakespeare's first folios. So she might have chosen it because of that. But because of this, like this altered the rest of her life, her decision to apply for work at this one specific library it just changed the game for her because prior to this, she loved English, she loved reading, she loved writing, but she didn't really know much or anything rather about code breaking, which is the whole reason why we're talking about her. And this discovery of this library and what it led to was the the, the match that lit the fire of her greatness, okay? And it just goes to show like one decision could change everything. Anyway, let's get into the reasons why or like what the heck happened. I'm just like building it up so much. So she walks into this library. She's attempting to get a job. I've seen some differing sources. Some say it was her first day on the job. Some say that she was applying for the job and this was the first day she walked into the library. Regardless, she didn't really work there. Like I, she like didn't really get that. She got the job maybe, but she just met this other librarian. And this other librarian is actually the one that changed her life pretty much. She was chatting with Elizabeth. Elizabeth was talking about the Shakespeare of it all and how much she loves Shakespeare, the original edition, that 1623 first folios that she saw, that she heard about, and was the reason why she wanted to come to this library in general. She was talking to this other librarian and the librarian was like, wait a second, you should talk to this guy named Colonel George Fabian. And he's also obsessed with Shakespeare and he's on this mission regarding Shakespeare. And Elizabeth was like, okay, who the heck is this guy? George, Colonel George, was a millionaire. He was a rich textile merchant. And funny enough, you know, if I first heard this with like fresh ears, not knowing what I know, I would think that the librarian was setting up Elizabeth with this guy as like a romantic date or like a romantic setup. Like, or at least that's where my mind went the first time that you know, I'm rereading this now, but it was for an entirely different reason. So she then, this librarian friend, calls him. She goes, okay, screw it. Let me just call him. Let me give him a call for you. She calls Colonel George on the phone and told George about her coworker, Elizabeth, and her love for Shakespeare, among other things. And she was like, you have to meet this girl. So then there was a meeting. Colonel George met Elizabeth and they discussed Shakespeare and one particular theory that the colonel had. So the colonel was hoping to use code breaking, this thing called code breaking that Elizabeth was not familiar with, but this concept to prove that Shakespeare and his plays, like so Shakespeare's plays had actually been written by this other guy, Sir Francis Bacon. So let's talk about this a little bit further because it's a very interesting conspiracy theory that I had never heard of. 
at the time. So it was kind of pretty popularly held at the time that um, Sir Francis Bacon, who was a philosopher, an essayist, scientist, was the actual author of Shakespeare's plays. And it was called Baconian Baconian theory, <laughs> as it was called. Uh, it says that Shakespeare was merely the front man taking all the glory so that Sir Francis Bacon would not be criticized as being this lowly public playwright because Bacon wanted to hold high office in government and being a playwright would not get him there. So he, his, you know, his thing, his way of getting around that, but still creating the plays was to use Shakespeare's name as like a pen name of sorts. And so technically, like people were trying to prove that yeah, maybe Shakespeare existed, but Sir Francis Bacon was the genius behind Shakespeare's plays and like gave Shakespeare the credit just so he could still run for office or whatever. Like this was like the general theory at the time, a very popular conspiracy theory that Shakespeare didn't really write his plays. So back to Elizabeth and her Shakespeare obsession. So, you know, George Fabian, Colonel George Fabian was intrigued by Elizabeth's knowledge at such a young age, she was 23 at the time, uh, her knowledge of Shakespeare and was like, you'd be perfect to help me in my mission of debunking this whole thing, like figuring out if this conspiracy theory is true or not. Like he, because he's just so wealthy and doesn't know what to do with it, he's like, I have tasked a whole group of people to figure out if this is true or not. Like I've set up a whole research facility at my mansion to discover if this is true or not. So he asked her, Elizabeth, hey, do you want to come and assist with this, with the lab and the research? I don't know if it was the only thing they were looking into, but it was called Riverbank Laboratory in Geneva, Illinois. So I assume there might have been other things going on. Like it just seemed like this guy was funding a lot of research or something like that. But she was one of about 15 other team members that were working under Colonel George. So she packed her bags and moved from Chicago, inland, still in Illinois, to this laboratory. And she was asked to learn from this other woman who'd been working there longer than her, or I don't know really what her specialty was aside from ciphering. Like she she knew how to cipher this woman who was also named Elizabeth. So there's two Elizabeths now. Elizabeth, our girl, Elizabeth with an E, and then Elizabeth with an A. Her last name was Gallup. And Elizabeth Gallup was showing our Elizabeth the ropes when she first got there. Because remember, she's 23 um, and she's new to the group. So among the group of like 15 or so, Elizabeth instantly hit it off with one of the guys, one of the boys, one of the men of the group. And he was her age. And his name was William. And he was a plant geneticist. Geneticist. I've been trying so hard to say that right. Yeah, plant geneticist. Okay. And he was also conveniently Elizabeth's mentor's photo assistant. So they worked together. Elizabeth and William, their whole goal, the whole group's goal was to prove the millionaire's hunch that Sir Francis Bacon had written Shakespeare's plays. Like Colonel George had thought that the true author had filled the texts, like if it's Sir Francis Bacon or someone else, like he thought that they had filled the writings of, quote, Shakespeare with cryptic clues that would point someone to their true identity. So his whole squad of people that he hired attempted to decipher any such clues to figure out like, okay, who's the true author? Like he had this belief that Sir Francis Bacon or someone else had written Shakespeare's stuff. 
So that was the goal of the whole project. But Elizabeth and William were working together a lot. And because of this, they also just had the same sense of humor. They really just got along and they fell in love. They soon fell in love, uh, mostly over the fact that they really bonded over the fact that they both thought that their mentor was clueless and like on the wrong track. They like made fun of the mentor and that was their shared commiseration, you know, shared hatred. It really brings people together anyway. So after all this research, and I guess even years later, like we'll get to this later on in the story, but years later, um, Elizabeth and, and William actually concluded that the whole conspiracy theory about Sir Francis Bacon was totally incorrect. Like it was just a theory and not true. They debunked the whole thing. So just a spoiler if you guys were curious about that. But the, the important thing that we got out of this whole little research phase was the fact that William and Elizabeth found each other. They fell in love all because of their shared appreciation for poetry. And then they got married. So together at Riverbank Laboratory, William and Elizabeth worked to develop new code-breaking strategies, which were published in eight booklets and became the foundation of the modern science of cryptology. And though it was a joint effort between the two of them, of the eight uh, booklets, only two included Elizabeth's name as co-author, which... Of course, because just the times. It's annoying, I know. So when World War I broke out, George, the millionaire, Colonel George, offered the government the assistance of his scholars working under his guidance at Riverbank. And William and Elizabeth were two of them, of course. They had just gotten married. And this was the situation. So this mysterious telegraph, the U.S. like picked up on this, that this mysterious telegraph had been sent from Germany to Mexico and they intercepted it or they somehow caught wind of it and they looked at it and no one knew what to make of it. It was sent on January 16th, 1917, and it was written by Germany's foreign minister, Arthur Zimmerman. And it was sent entirely in code. I looked at it. and It's actually just like a bunch of numbers separated by spaces here and there, but it's like all numbers. Like, I would not know what this thing means. And, you know, code crackers eventually got to it. The few that there are, including our people, William and Elizabeth, they found out that it was essentially a proposal of an alliance extended from Germany to Mexico, like Germany saying to Mexico, hey, let's make war together against the U.S. And if you guys work with us, we will give you we will give you, Mexico, your lost territory that the U.S. took from you. So Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona, Mexico would get those states back if they worked with Germany. So because of the code cracking, the U.S. figured this out and figured out what was going on. They wouldn't have known otherwise. Like, this is a very serious thing that could have happened. And so... This Zimmerman telegram sent in code changed the course of William and Elizabeth's lives, seeing as though they possessed skills that were suddenly extremely valuable and just totally necessary to the U.S. government. These two 20-somethings who had just gotten married that very same year that the Zimmerman telegraph was sent, 1917, were actually like two of maybe four people in the entirety of the U.S. who could break codes. And the military was desperate for these types of people because radio and wireless technology was this new thing changing the nature of war. And Elizabeth and William were two kids who knew how to decipher codes. Elizabeth was the first to decode military messages intercepted from the Mexican army, working by counting the frequency of 
characters. So the Freedmans, the married bunch, began operating as a small but mighty team, learning as they went. For the first eight months of the war, Elizabeth, William, and their small team conducted all code breaking for every part of the U.S. government. Wow. Like neither Elizabeth nor William was particularly good at math. So they operated on a fully intuitive level to decipher sense patterns and code crack. And Honestly, it's very comforting to read that since I can't do math to save my life, but I still consider myself to be intelligent, you know, like it's just math isn't everything. Like, yeah, it's pretty cool if you're good at math, but like it's not everything, right? So the Freedmans became leaders in the first U.S. code-breaking unit, intercepting radio messages and decoding encrypted intelligence. A historian named Amy Butler Greenfield says, while William had this excellent intuition for breaking ciphers, Elizabeth had a different kind of gift for codes that no one else could see. She said she was incredibly good at recognizing patterns and she would make what looked like guesses turn out to be right. Like she'd take a guess or someone would think, oh, she's just taking a wild guess and she was right. Like that's wild. Okay. So back to Colonel George. Remember him? The guy who first hired these kids who are now these like world renowned or US renowned, I guess almost world renowned cryptologists. So Colonel George, he actually ended up opening up his mansion slash lab as a code breaking school and 80 young officers applied with their wives. Elizabeth and William had set this example of how husband and wife could work so well together as a team, which is just a little aside that I thought was cute. So after World War I, the U.S. Coast Guard hired Elizabeth to keep an eye on Prohibition-era smuggling rings. During this time, gangsters like Al Capone were able to rake in up to like $100 million a year thanks to the overwhelming business opportunity of illegal alcohol. Like I have a whole podcast episode on prohibition. You guys might remember from a few years ago. It's just a crazy thing that happened in our history. But Elizabeth was tasked with cracking these booze smuggling rings by listening in to their radio messages and deciphering the codes that they used. And she soon solved more than 650 messages in 24 different code systems used by rum runners on the Texas Gulf Coast. And I learned while reading up on this that rum runners were people or ships tasked with bringing illegal liquor ashore or across a border. And it's also the name of a bar that I've been to in New Jersey. (laughs) So Elizabeth soon found that her work investigating these bootleggers was a piece of cake, like child's play. Like the smugglers used very simple codes that were easy to crack, to her at least. Like honestly, I probably would not be able to figure it out, but to her, she thought it was like the the easiest thing she'd done. Like she said, when choosing a keyword, never choose one which is associated with the project with which one is engaged, which kind of sounds straightforward to me, but I don't know. I like, I don't know her genius. It was hard to figure out her exact ways of working. I feel like she was just one of those people who looked at something and knew, like she just knew from the get-go what the pattern was. It's just crazy. So after the repeal of prohibition in 1934, rum runners changed their speed. They switched to smuggling heroin and morphine because of course they did. So because of that, Elizabeth followed suit. She changed gears and she moved to decrypting messages between narcotics smugglers. 
So Elizabeth, she did so many things in this period of her life. She ran the Coast Guard's first code-breaking unit for the next decade and did so many things. Together, she and her clerk cracked an estimated 12,000 encryptions, and their work resulted in 650 criminal prosecutions, and she testified as an expert witness in 33 cases. Wowza. Like, that is crazy. She's a badass. During all of this in a time when women just barely even had the right to vote. Like, depending on exactly what year her work with the Coast Guard began, like, you know, as most of us know, 1920 was the year that, you know, women got the national right to vote, even though obviously it wasn't easy for women of all races and backgrounds for some time, like for like till like 1965 to actually vote with confidence. But even given this, like there was such prejudice against women who worked in male-dominated industries during this time period and she persevered like it wasn't a huge part of her story that she like obviously it was kind of a given that she was going to meet some backlash or like people at the at the office not you know agreeing with her because she's a woman or not taking her work seriously but she did so much despite this like running the freaking code breaking unit for the US Coast Guard so so impressive though like now sitting here reading about her I'm seeing how many how many injustices happened in her life because she was a woman. Like, it's just so eye-opening to me. Like, for example, her, Elizabeth, and her husband, William, they both worked as contractors in the same job, doing the same work. She earned just half of what he made for the same job. Crazy. Anyway, back to her accomplishments and the crazy things that she did. So in 1938, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police flew Elizabeth to Vancouver to analyze messages discovered on a Chinese merchant's property, all coded messages. And she solved these with the use of a Chinese dictionary. Like she just had, all she had was this Chinese dictionary and she exposed a smuggling ring trading Canadian weapons to Hong Kong for drugs. And to my knowledge, she didn't actually speak the language. She just like figured it out from the dictionary, which is just craziness. So amidst all this, amidst all the stuff she was doing, like she was doing so much work cracking all of these codes, but she also somehow at the same time managed to study for a master's degree in archaeology from American University. Decoding Mayan glyphs had been a lifelong passion that she shared with her husband, William. Just crazy. So she got this master's degree while she was cracking the code. She also had two kids with William. So this woman, she did it all. It's just bonkers. Okay, back to like the timeline. So after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, the Navy took over Elizabeth's Coast Guard cracking unit, code cracking unit. Um so the one that she was successfully running, the Navy said, nah, not anymore. You're demoted. We're taking over because women are just not allowed. They're not allowed. Women would only be allowed to serve fully in the military after 1948. So this was 1941. So she was not, as a woman, was not allowed to be in charge of a unit. But she didn't let this get her down. After all, she was brilliant. She was successfully, you know, nailing drug smugglers, cracking codes, written in Chinese. She identified a Manhattan antique doll expert as a homegrown Japanese spy and helped resolve a diplomatic feud with Canada. Wow, just a few things, just like a few things she did. And something I just thought of actually just came to me, the fact that she's, you know, messing with all of these very powerful scary people, like the bad guys, like she is messing, foiling these people's plans 
maybe it's a good thing that she wasn't given credit for a lot of the things that she did. Maybe that's why she kept her recognition under wraps. Um, like I can't imagine that like the mobsters and prohibition were very happy with her and all these like very powerful, you know, drug smugglers and things. So maybe that's why I don't really know why she was classified, like her information was classified, but that just came to me just now, obviously. Like, yeah, maybe that's why. Anyway, so speaking of the bad guys, let's talk about what would become the greatest challenge of Elizabeth's career. And you guys, hang on to your hats. This is a crazy little tale. So while Elizabeth was with the Coast Guard, she led a team that eavesdropped on Germany's spies as they discussed the movement of Allied ships in South America. So she was eavesdropping. This was like the 40s, 1940s. So Elizabeth actually was around 49 years old at the time. And this was huge, huge work. Very important, very risky business. In other words, Elizabeth's task was to spy on Nazis who the U.S. feared would encourage coups in South America, destabilizing the region. So she was listening in, deciphering codes, and trying to figure out what they were up to and how we could put a stop to it. But in 1942, something terrible happened. Elizabeth lost all connection with the Nazis. Like All communications that she was intercepting stopped coming in, which pretty much signaled to her that they had found out that they were being spied on. So it was radio silence. They chose, like they, they derailed their current method of communication because they're like, oh shoot, someone's listening and we know it. We were tipped off somehow. And so that's why it went radio silent. And the reason why... They found out why the Nazis figured out that someone was listening was so frustrating because it came from in-house. Like Elizabeth was sitting in one room, listening in, cracking the codes, trying to figure out what to do. And meanwhile, this other person in the very same like agency or like part of the side, the, the good guys, like another good guy stepped on her toes, like completely derailed what she was working on because, so this was actually FBI director at the time, J. Edgar Hoover, tipped off the Nazis because he prematurely launched a raid and exposed the intelligence operation in place that Elizabeth was working on. He was like, like, let's not wait. Let's do it now. Let's just like get our guns out and go before we have more information. Like, screw it. We have enough. We have all we need and threw off the entire thing. Like, I can't imagine how mad Elizabeth was. Like, she probably felt like she was about to get a breakthrough and then completely smashed to smithereens by this guy, J. Edgar Hoover. So figuring out what to do next was the greatest challenge of her career, Elizabeth said. She did what she could, given this massive setback. Like, she was completely frozen out, couldn't figure out what they were saying and what was going on. But though the Nazis had changed their ciphers, changed their methods of communicating after Hoover's raid, Elizabeth and her team were able to figure out a way to crack the Nazis' new codes. And through this hard work, she deciphered about 4,000 typed messages, 48 radio communications, and actually broke three Enigma codes. And I didn't know what that was. I looked it up, like, what is an Enigma code? And it's actually this, like, typewriter-looking device that was used by German military to encode strategic messages before and during World War II. So they look like a typewriter, but they're pretty complicated because I, from what I've read, you have to click or press certain keys in like a certain order in order for it to reveal the message. So extremely hard to crack. And they cracked three of them. And 
It's just crazy. The way that they did it was they used analog methods, mostly pen and paper, to break three separate of these machines' codes. And because of this code cracking, the team was able to unveil a network of Nazi-led informants by name. Like, she literally did this, even given that massive setback. And it actually reminds me, this little, like, code cracking situation reminds me of the second Knives Out movie, if you guys have seen it. I saw the first one, I loved it, so I watched the second one, and I wasn't thrilled with it. Like, I thought it could be better. I wasn't totally into it, but I did like the code cracking element in the beginning of the movie, so it's kind of reminding me of that. Anyway, back to our story. So, Elizabeth barely got the credit for saving the day. And like I said before, maybe it's because of safety or whatever, but regardless, I'm mad for her. And the next sentence, the next thing I'm going to say is going to make your blood boil if you're anything like me. So the guy, remember FBI director Edgar Hoover, who fucked up the whole thing, like almost fucked up the entire thing. He ended up taking credit for much of her success. Yes. The guy who almost botched the entire operation Yeah, him and the U.S. Naval Institute notes that Coast Guard Lieutenant Commander Leonard T. Jones, this guy, another guy, different guy, who Elizabeth had trained, was also recognized instead of her. Like, these two guys were credited, and she wasn't. Like, oh my god, I just want to scream. I want to scream. And this journalist named Jason Fagone, who did a lot of work trying to get her name out there, get Elizabeth's name out there. He said, it was a lie, but it was a lie that worked. And it was the lie that ended up getting written into the history books, which is so frustrating. I get it. Like, yes, keep her name under wraps. But 2008, people found out about this whole thing and no one really did anything to make sure that the the truth was out there. So it's just grinds my gears. Anyway, it's kind of reminiscent, all of this, like the credit taking of it all um, is very reminiscent of what we actually talked about earlier with the Shakespeare and Sir Francis Bacon situation and like the realization that the whole thing wasn't true at all. And Shakespeare himself deserves the recognition. Like this guy, Sir Francis Bacon was being credited for something that by some people, but not by everybody, but by some people for work that Shakespeare did, like it just, whatever. Credit. Interesting thing. Interesting thing. All I have to say is shame on you, Edgar Hoover. You know what you did, even though you're dead now. You know what you did. But I know a lot of women can relate to this feeling, like doing such remarkable things or like doing things that required so much time and effort and not getting paid or recognized the same as your male counterparts. And like, it's just so frustrating. Elizabeth Friedman, she, through all of this work and all the things that she did during her years with the government, she built herself a solid reputation as a fixer. Like she moved from agency to agency, job to job, helping each male-dominated group develop its own code deciphering squad and techniques and then like left to go to the next one. Like she'd go, like teach people, write notes, give them to the, the person in charge and be like, here you go. This is the fix. This is how you guys get better. And then she'd move on and would rarely get any credit for doing this. And the next part of this story is pretty heartbreaking too. So according to sources I found, her family, so the Friedman family Christmas card of 1944, announced that William Friedman had been awarded the Exceptional Service Award with Gold Wreath, and Elizabeth Friedman, it said, had been working on a, quote, routine Navy job. That's it. 
And speaking of William, he actually was incredible. He did great things. He really supported his wife. He's not a bad guy. It's just unfortunate that he got so much more recognition for things. Like, But of course, like that was the nature of the time. Things have changed considerably, not entirely, but considerably. But William, he earned recognition during his lifetime and is credited by many as the godfather of the NSA, the National Security Agency, which he helped shape in his time, which is pretty huge. For a while, people were like, oh, yes, uh, William Friedman and his wife. (laughs) But now people are starting to realize, oh, Elizabeth Friedman and her husband, you know, like they're both incredible and accomplished so much in their respective areas of things. But anyway, so... By the time that she passed away in 1980, Elizabeth Smith Friedman had said very little about her own accomplishments. And there's actually a really good reason for this. Like I said, even though it pains me to see this woman glossed over time, the publication reports that she took a Navy oath, like a literal Navy oath, promising not to reveal the full details of her work during her lifetime. Which is just interesting. Like the reason why I can't really wrap my head around this is like, yeah, I understand. Like it's safety. It's it's what people do when they work in these sorts of jobs. But then why do like the FBI director take full credit and like loudly pronounce like that he did this or express that he did this and this other lieutenant commander expressed that he did this? Like how how is it possible then that these other people are getting credit when Elizabeth, I guess she was like, an employee it's just so confusing to me. I, I just don't get it. I don't get it. I don't know. But wait, backing up to Elizabeth and William, I want to talk more about them because I think they're so cute together. If you see the pictures of them, like, oh, I just love them. And before both of them passed away, after they retired from service and all the stuff they were doing, they collaborated on a passion project, a book called The Shakespearean Ciphers Examined. And it was in this book that they shared all of their research from when they first met and attempted to figure out the whole conspiracy theory of Sir Francis Bacon and like Shakespeare. And like I said, they figured out that it was all false. It was all a scam. And so they wrote a whole book on it and it got so many awards and it's so cute that they did it together. Um, and by all accounts, they had a great relationship. And after her husband's death, William passed away first 10 years or 11 years prior to Elizabeth. But after he died, Elizabeth devoted much of her retirement life to compiling a library and bibliography of William's work. Like, she made it her mission to make sure that he wasn't forgotten, which is so sweet. Makes me really, makes me warm to the heart, you know? I hope someday I have someone in my life that I'm like, I want to make sure you're not forgotten. Like, it's just so cute. And, you know, now, like I said, now Elizabeth is being recognized. Now people are hearing her name and knowing who she is. You know, before 2008, this wasn't a thing. And even a little bit after 2008, this wasn't a thing, but... In July of 2020, the Coast Guard announced that it would name a ship after Elizabeth, which I just love that fact. So in closing, our girl, Elizabeth Smith Friedman, wife, mother, writer, Shakespeare enthusiast, cryptologist or cryptanalyst, as her husband called her and coined the term, and pioneer in U.S. cryptology, died on Halloween, October 31st, 1980 in Plainfield, New Jersey at the age of 88. After 50 years in the code-cracking business, she proved to be a pioneer in code-breaking, and she is truly so inspirational. And I hope that everyone shares her story. And if you ever look at something and you're like, I don't get it. I don't don't know how to crack the code. Elizabeth sure would know how to do it. She would. She's a wizard. She's a wizard. And now I'm feeling like I should 
do some sort of like code cracking puzzle because I feel like it's just so satisfying. It must be so satisfying when you crack a code, when you figure out like this, it just all makes sense. It's kind of like doing the wordle. You know, once you do the wordle and you're like, oh my God, it all makes sense. I can't believe it. (laughs) Like I bet Elizabeth would be really good at the wordle. Anyway, that's today's story. Thank you guys for listening. Let me know what you guys think over on Instagram and I will tell you guys another tale next week. See you then.